Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Good evening, children of the night. Just a reminder, two more weeks until our 200th episode. Our trip south for the summer brings us to one of the United States' most widely and wildly puzzled over mystery in the history of white people on this continent, the lost colony of Roanoke. On the 25th of March, way back in 1584, Elizabeth I, Queen of England, granted Sir Walter Raleigh a charter for the colonization of North America. A few years ago, while vacationing in the area, I was educated that the charter was for the entire continent, and furthermore, Raleigh himself had not visited North America a single time in his entire life. However, the venture to establish his colony began with a survey expedition led by two men, Philip Amadas and Arthur Barlow. The trip established communication with two local tribes, the Sekatoans and the Croatoans. They returned to England with two Croatoans, seemingly without having to do any enslavement or kidnapping of any sort. One of the two's name was Manio, which is spelled M-A-N-T-E-O. There is a coastal town in North Carolina of the same name, and the people around there have instructed me that it is pronounced Manio, despite there being a T in the word. My Ohioan tongue and my GPS device have a very difficult time omitting that consonant. The information provided by the two natives was enough to mount a second expedition led by Sir Richard Grenville. His expedition was a bit more varied and difficult. One of the ships lost the majority of its food after striking a shoal. The expedition distracted itself with some privateering in Puerto Rico. For those of you who may not be familiar with the term privateering, in a nutshell, it's high seas piracy while under the state commission. Later, while actually about Roanoke Island, the expedition believed the natives had stolen a silver cup. So, naturally, the English burnt the natives' village to the ground. Without going into full historic details on our podcast about scary stories, I'll skip over a bit, but that first attempt to set up a colony failed. 
However, Sir Francis Drake, after doing some privateering of his own in the Caribbean, happened along and took some of the colonists back to England in a semi-rescue. Those colonists would bring some new crops back across the Atlantic. Interestingly, despite the colony being a current failure and shortly about to be an absolute mystery, the choice of bringing one of these crops back with them would result in about one million Irish to North America about 300 years later. Yes, the potato. So one year later, Sir Walter Raleigh, not deterred by the loss of finances, or lives for that matter, on Roanoke Island, sent a new group of just over 100 colonists to try to settle again. Finding the previous colony empty of all people, save for a single human skeleton waiting to greet them, the colony was re-established. Modern climatologists are fairly certain that the year of their arrival, 1587, happened to be the start of a three-year drought that was the worst in eight centuries. Although it took the colonists only a few months to figure out things were bad and send the leader of their expedition back to England to plead for help, it took him three years to return due to the Anglo-Spanish War. When he returned, the 115 people who had left behind three years earlier were all gone. The only clue found carved into a post of the fence around the village was the word Croatoan. I'll leave the mystery to you to research the details of the variety of speculations as to what happened to the colony, lest we turn ourselves into a history podcast. I'd encourage you to steer away from History.com or Wikipedia. Instead, go looking for the tinfoil hat crowd series, such as mass alien abduction or slaughter at the hands of the New World's unhappy supernatural population of demons. Let's get on to our stories, Children of the Night. We have two stories for you this evening. First up will be a story from Andy Echevarria. He has long been interested in the suspense genre in all forms. Currently, he has work published with SNM Horror Magazine, the horror design and static movement. The satisfaction he derives from creating something out of nothing and letting it lead him into limitless other worlds is what he enjoys most about the process. And if those who read his stories are genuinely terrified, then he's that much more satisfied. He lives in New York City. And now, Andy Echevarria's Flight to Yesterday. That morning, as Aaron prepared breakfast, he couldn't shake the dark memory of his wife's death. It was three years ago today. As his thoughts wavered to that fateful June day, he was overcome by sadness and guilt for not listening to the dream, the one that had haunted him for six days straight. The scene was the same, a fire ravaging through the aisleway of an aircraft, the screams of passengers rising above the roar of the engines as the plane descended towards the ground an inevitable death. In the rear of the plane, Libby sat calmly, beside her a tall, bald-headed man, whispering in her ear. He was about to jump into the scene, hoping to save his beloved, when he awoke. Now, he sipped the freshly brewed coffee before lighting a cigarette. He puffed twice, then ground the cigarette into an empty plate and hunched forward, hands on his head. He should have driven her, put her on a train, not on that flight. Three days before the crash, her employer had invited her to speak at their annual fundraiser in New York. Her boss had promised to promote her to VP of Marketing if she raised at least as much as she had the year before. Except for a three-day trip by car to San Francisco as a child, she'd never been out of Los Angeles and was eagerly looking forward to her first visit to the Big Apple. On her ride to the airport, he fought the urge to tell her about the bad dream, instead telling her how much he loved her and wishing her good luck. 
As he watched the plane ascend into the sky at half-past nine, the feeling that he'd never see her again persisted. Nonsense, he thought. Dreams aren't real. He wobbled as he made his way through the parking lot. Even still, he looked to the heavens, hoping, as if by magic, the plane would reappear and head back to the airport. Of course, that was only fanciful thinking. No plane streaked across the cloudless, deep blue sky. Inside his car, he couldn't use the ignition key. He sat clutching the wheel, praying that his wife would have a safe trip. A moment later, he heard a tapping on the window glass. Young man, can I have a word with you? A voice quavered. Aaron turned and flinched. Outside stood the tall, bald-headed man, the same one from inside the plane, from his dream. The stranger's eyes held an eerie shining, like those of a feline caught in a flashlight. Then Aaron noticed the face, which was badly scarred, like a multitude of red worms fried into his already withered skin. "'Young man, please!' the man croaked, tapping the glass with his gnarled fingers. "'Just a word with you!' Hand-shaking, sweat gleaming down his face, Aaron reached for the ignition and sped away. At home, twenty minutes later, Aaron poured himself a scotch and watched a football game on TV. The screen flashed, breaking news, and a somber anchor announced that Flight 928 had caught fire in midair and crashed fifteen minutes after takeoff. His heart thudding, Aaron pressed the remote. He switched to an all-news station and froze. The announcer. It was the tall man. His face still had those ugly scars, but now they were a macabre contrast to his expensive suit. All 215 people likely dead, the man announced haltingly, reading from a sheet of paper. He looked up and Aaron felt those otherworldly eyes boring into him. The screen went blank. Aaron sat staring. Had he really seen what he thought he had? He felt something hot and sharp sear through his head. Gasping, he tumbled off the sofa. Neighbors found him an hour later, curled up on the carpet screaming and repeatedly calling out Libby's name. Wanting to take his mind off his wife's death, he made his way to the porch and looked out. A blue jay sat perched on a branch, enjoying the fair weather. About a mile along the road that connected to the city, a tern flapped its wings before flying to the sky, silent as it went. His eyes watered. He missed Libby sorely. Oh well, what was the use now? She was dead. Nothing mattered. He hardly went out. He didn't take any calls. Except for the neighbors, whom he rarely greeted, he didn't speak to anyone in the neighborhood. He was just living day by day, often hoping for his own death. Perhaps then he'd meet Libby in another world. Suddenly, to the northeast, something winked in the sky. A jet plane. As the flying metal arched from east to west, leaving behind a fluffy plume, his heart lurched. It was a 727, there was no mistaking its shape and size. He was engulfed in a peculiar sensation, as though he'd slipped out of himself and was zipping through a vast dark space. Then a thick sheet of mist seemed to halt further progress until the vapor cleaved and people screaming their lungs out, baggage tumbling out of lockers, metal and plastic buckling and melting, fire and smoke leaping and swirling all around. He wanted to move his hand, to pinch himself, to feel the edges of the comfy that he was lying on at home, but he found himself unable to lift a finger. Rather, he was forced to sit still and look. Several people surged in the aisles, yelling, most with the side exits banging on the doors. 
One had a Bible open as he gesticulated like a mad priest. Others went down the floor and crawled towards the cockpit. The pilot's voice crackled in panic over the speakers. God have mercy! In a nearby row, two children wailed and pawed at the dress of a woman who'd fainted. Beyond, a stewardess clutched at an overhead locker with her hands, her face deathly white. The pilot's voice crackled again. Come on, you bitch! He screamed, desperation in his voice. As if in vengeful response, the aircraft gave a mighty shudder and accelerated its descent. That's when Aaron saw the bald-headed, tall man, sitting unperturbed amidst the chaos, leaning across to speak to someone. From beside the tall man, Libby appeared to glance towards Aaron wide-eyed, a stream of tears falling from her face. The tall man turned to face Aaron. Those strange eyes held urgent appeal. Aaron stepped forward, but suddenly stopped. He extricated the belt, but when he straightened up, the tall man and Libby had vanished. Aaron awoke sweating. Another nightmare. How long had passed since he'd blacked out and had again experienced the nightmare? In his hands, the coffee was still warm. He guessed only minutes passed since he was in the living room reminiscing about Libby until passing out. Sighing deeply, he looked out at the ocean. The fishing boats were still out there, though further now. Near the shoreline, a couple kissed. Then he looked up, a 727 streaming down like a flaming sword. He stood up, shaking. Suddenly, a humongous wave, perhaps 20 feet high, hurtled towards him. He scrambled into the house and shut the glass doors with such force that it cracked on one side. He raced through the hallway and had almost reached the basement door when a giant wet paw slapped his back. And then he saw only black. A female voice, coming awake. His eyes... He couldn't open them. He felt a hand on his brow, dry and soothing. He tried again, and this time he was able to open them. A woman in white. A nurse. Her face plump and smiling. Then another face came close. It was the tall man. Where? Aaron began, but was unable to speak more. Hospital, the nurse announced as if from a distance. Lucky man, the doctor said, nodding away and stepped out of sight. Aaron noticed a tube snaking out of his right arm to a plastic bottle hooked to a stand. Can you talk? A voice croaked. Aaron's eyes widened. You! He shouted. It was the tall man, but his face bore none of the scars before. Who's he talking to? The nurse asked, still out of sight. Beats me, the doctor said. He too remained out of view. Aaron tried to raise his head, but the tall man gently pushed him back. You need to rest, son. You were on that plane, the tall man nodded. Why didn't you come to me? I, no, I tried, the tall man sighed. Not hard enough, son. God, would this nightmare never end. It made no difference to you, right? The tall man went on. Was the ghost talking? Not me, Aaron. I'm no ghost. Still shaking his head, the tall man stepped away. He felt his entire body relax as something akin to bliss washed over him. He came awake, a shuffling. The nightmare hadn't yet ended. It was the tall man again, yet again, pacing near the wall. Nightmare, Aaron? Aaron nodded. I don't think so. A long pause. You're actually very fortunate. With that, he walked out of Aaron's sight. Moments later, the door opened, and the nurse stepped in. She smiled. How are we feeling this morning? The tall man, Aaron began. The nurse's face was blank. Tall man? 
Aaron's head began to throb. Then he saw, as though through a filmsy lens, the nurse inject something into the plastic bottle on the stand before he felt his mind gradually slip into nothingness. This time he saw all white. Was he awake now? Yes, he was. The door opened. Aaron turned. Yet again, that tall man. And Libby! She smiled and was more beautiful and divine than he'd ever seen her to be. She wore a white satin gown and her blonde hair glowed a lush gold. Sweetheart! was all that he could utter before something gushed up his stomach and choked his throat. He shut his eyes. Let this not be a dream! A soft hand came to rest on his arm. "'How are you, honey?' she said in the gentlest whisper he'd ever heard her speak in. He reached up so that he could hold her close. She ran her hand through his hair and whispered again, "'You sure took a long time to come around.' Three years, to be exact,' the tall man drawled from behind. Aaron looked at bafflement from the tall man to Libby. Three years?' His voice felt weak. Libby nodded. Three years, Aaron, the tall man said. Then Libby rose and she went to Aaron. I missed you, Aaron said. I didn't think I'd ever get to see you again. Missed you too, Libby replied. And now we're back together and I'll never leave your side again. Then they kissed, sweet and soft, which reminded them of times past when they shared a warm romance. It was as if their relationship was new. I love you. He whispered, "'Love you, too,' she said, and as they wrapped their arms around each other, somewhere in heaven the angels sang. Libby and Aaron had been reunited, and nothing this time would ever separate them. That was Andy Echevarria's Flight to Yesterday is read by Logan Waterman. Logan has a degree in technical theater from California State University and has worked in many theaters, large and small, professional and amateur. He has also worked for Apple Computers, sold hot tubs and comic books, and prepared court documents. He has taught and performed sword fighting for the stage and runs lights for a local band, until they broke up. As of writing this bio, he has narrated for the Drabblecast and nearly all of the District of Wonders shows. Logan currently lives in Northern California with Grendel, a huge black beast whose primary occupations are sleeping, stocking the fish in the aquarium, and keeping the house safe from the hordes of invisible monsters that come out after dark. And Morgana, a small fluffy queen who rules her domain with an iron paw. The fish remain unimpressed. Thank you, Logan. Next up will be a longer piece from T.E. Grau. T.E. had a story we aired way back in episode 114, In the Cave She Sang, which I narrated. T.E. Grau is an author of dark fiction whose work has been featured in dozens of anthologies, magazines, literary journals, and audio platforms. The Nameless Dark, his first collection of short fiction, was released in July of 2015 by Lethe Press. T.E. Grau lives in Los Angeles with his wife and daughter hovering above a secret garden. And don't miss it. In the show notes will be a link to his webpage. And now, T.E. Growls. Free fireworks. Jacob let loose of his father's hand and took off across the cobblestones of Independence Square, slaloming through the statuary as he headed for the brightly colored booth advertising, Free Fireworks. William smiled, readjusting his grip on the bouquet of red, white, and blue carnations. 
Jacob acted as surprised and excited as he did last year, as he did every year. Children never tire of the familiar. In Old City, fireworks were distributed free of charge by the federal government, which knew all too well that those who became accustomed to the explosions of gunpowder made for better soldiers. And in this city, as it was in all free cities that were left, everyone was a soldier. It was thirty minutes until the parade and two hours before sundown, but already the crowded streets were alive with pops, flashes, and booms from sixty tons of liberated Mexican fireworks doled out one bag at a time. Excited hands couldn't wait to bring spark to gunpowder and ring in the holiday with roaring concussion. M.A.D.s and bottle rockets, black cats and spinners, smoke bombs, snakes, and sparklers for the girls. There was a certain power to the dangerous alchemy. War games, played by children, watched by adults. Across the top of the square, below the breeze line, tendrils of smoke hung like lazy apparitions in a sticky July air. Jubilant groups of people gathered on stoops and balconies, vined in ivy, drinking, grilling, and laughing under strung lines of tiny liberty bells. Revelers spilled out of apartment building doorways and onto narrow sidewalks, taking the party into the street. Security was high and conspicuous, but citizens were allowed free reign today, and knew it. This was Independence Day, the most important holiday of the year. The day to howl freedom in an explosive symphony of a million tiny bombs. All other holidays were shadows now, their backstories muddled by generations of tears and rivers of blood. Jacob clomped back over to William in oversized steel toes, eyes as big as saucers. Look what I got, Daddy, he said breathlessly, opening his bag. The fireworks were a bit sparse this year. Budget cuts. The war had been dragging on too long. Insurgencies were like that. Ones fueled by religious fanaticism were even worse. Without hope for a treaty or surrender, they could suck a country dry while every last zealot with a death's wish was pried from a hole and liquidated. Pricey stuff, this business of hunting and killing. Let's show Mommy, Jacob said, taking his father's hand. William's wife, Abigail, was back in their apartment, listening to jazz with the windows closed, a bottle open and curtains drawn. She hated the fourth, hated the fireworks and what they meant, hated that her husband might some day join the parade that started in twenty-five minutes. So she hid her patriotism made poor behind four walls and a ceiling, waiting out the day, especially the night, peering into a glass and drinking what came out. Abigail missed the old days, when the Fourth of July was about picnics and skinny-dipping and explosions that would never reach you. William missed the old days, too, but he knew that overlooking your shoulder at the golden globe behind wouldn't change the unlit road ahead when you finally turned back around. Don't you want to watch the parade? William asked his son, not ready to go back home yet. Jazz always confused him, made him edgy, especially that bebop shit. Whatever happened to Lionel Belasco? Abigail could never hold her liquor. A firecracker went off nearby. William jumped and reached for something in his belt that wasn't there. Can't we light these on the roof, Daddy? Jacob asked, holding up a handful of Roman candles. I want to send them into outer space. William chuckled tossling his son's hair. Let's go lay the flowers first, he said, peering over a sea of heads crowded around a tall bronze statue. Okay, Daddy, 
Jacob said absently, squinting at the labels of his fireworks, trying to work through the inscrutable Spanish to get at the secrets. But can we hurry? The play's going to start any minute. William glanced towards the end of the square that opened up into the city proper, where a group of disabled veterans and the local battalion marching band were gathering in the shadow of a converted church. A hobbling man, his face pinched and whirled by shrapnel scars, jerked his body in that direction, still trying to come to terms with the rubber and titanium that now served as his left leg. Jacob jumped in front of him, pointing his finger pistols at the teetering man. Pow! Pow! The old veteran staggered dramatically, feigning a mortal wound, then smiled and winked before continuing on. Jacob held on tight to his father's thick, military-issue belt as they wound through the jostling crowd arriving at the center of the square. William laid his flowers near the base of the statue, adding the bouquet to the thousands already stacked wide around the monument. This one was built higher and grander than the other eleven statues arranged in a half-moon on each flank. William stood back, taking a moment before bending to his son and recounting the story he told him every year. Jacob smiled, the magic of the familiar. This was the statue of Sheikh Nazir, the first member of the group of twelve, a handful of popular firebrand religious leaders, politicians, and mullahs, who turned their back on extremism and joined the side of law and order. This shocking movement flipped the field in the time of terror that erupted after the dawn of the New Enlightenment over a decade ago. It was then that the new League of Nations bonded under one banner of unmitigated truth, fighting back against those who shut their eyes and held close to lies taught by generations that came before those who didn't know any better. A giddy squeal came from nearby, interrupting William's story. Jacob looked over at a group of kids who had somehow hollowed out a pocket of space in the rowdy crowd. They were setting up a line of beer bottles, anchored by pouring in grit through clenched fists dug from a purloined sandbag. Jacob's face brightened. Bottle rockets. Sweet. He looked up at his dad, who nodded. Jacob ran over and joined in, speaking in the fast, clipped language of little boys. William looked past the children at the arching line of mismatched statues. These were the twelve infidels. A dozen to turn the tide. Their bold organization in a time of chaos helped prop up the failing collective of hastily treated governments as wave after wave of catastrophic suicide attacks of all three countries nearly brought civilization to its dusty knees. Loaded oil tankers were turned into half-million-ton napalm bombs. Passenger trains filled with ammonium nitrate burrowed deep into the city centers, leveling financial districts. Dirty bombs depopulated 17 major metropolitan areas, while a massive fleet of truck bombs took out governmental installations and 42 others. In the outlying areas, groups of heavily armed men burst into shopping malls, movie theaters, and grade schools, mowing down everything with a pulse. Sleeper cells and military platoons fragged fellow soldiers and blew themselves up, taking out as much of the brass as they could carry. Brother killed sister, only to be killed by father. Ordered society broke down, melted away, congealing in a pool of splattered organs and chips of bone embedded in bedroom walls. Ultra-religious savagery reared the many heads of the Hydra as holy warriors wrapped in death-cult dogma sought to plunge the globe back into a new dark age and they came so dangerously close. Two million died that first day, July 4th, eleven years ago. But the infidels fought back on the 5th, spreading hope like a spider web creeping up from the underground to cover the globe. And so the war began in earnest. 
the new war of independence, the last great war, everyone said. Everyone was probably right. William's modest Midwestern city stumbled to the brink of extinction after the first day, as the kill ratio was astronomically high. But the frontier was built on DYI and the old metal bubbled up. Soon, a small but determined group of police, ex-military, and even the local football team picked up hunting rifles and used their innate knowledge of deer trails and secret ravines to track down the remnants of the murderous cells that just days before killed thousands of locals. The remaining city leaders decided to pull back into Old City, walling off the blood-soaked suburbs of what became known as New City, and hunkered down. That's what people did on the plains. They hunkered down and the world turned foul as it often did out here. That was seven years ago. Pitched battles were fought in the meantime. Bombs of various sizes went off almost weekly. Always testing. Spies were sent, and spies were captured. The stench of waiting death hung over everything, as the souls of the free citizens calloused under the weight of daily, lingering fear. Some trained. Others drank and listened to jazz. A few split themselves open on the cobblestones. Everyone prayed and watched the skies. But Old City was still free, and today was a celebration of that improbable fact. Wrapped inside the stars and blood-red stripes of a nation that was now just another wounded part of a wider world, wave the flag, crack a year-old beer, and toast the fates. Death came not on this day. Fight like they do, die like we do. And they did. And so did we. Four bottle rockets fizzed up from the group of children in near syncopation, whistling past the bronze image of proud Nazir, who looked out with fierce eyes under raised, haughty brows to the city skyline, towards the bombed skyscrapers and scooped-out remains of New City, just visible over the thirty-foot concrete security wall. A wickedly curved scimitar was housed safely in its scabbard at his waist, but a knotted hand was on the hilt, always at the ready to take down insurgent filth from any stripe, any tribe, even his own. We were all infidels in the image of Sheikh Nazir in the group of twelve, and we of the Freelands wore the title as both a blood oath and badge of honor. William walked over to Jacob, who was staring at a tiny rocket still resting in its bottle. Mine was a dud, Jacob said quietly, a smoking punk held in his hand like a stick of incense. William lifted his son into his arms with a grunt, reminded that the day was fast approaching when he wouldn't be able to lift him up any more. He pushed back a bit of Jacob's unruly black hair, hair like his mother's. I promise that'll be the last dud of the night. Jacob smiled and hugged his father, wrapping his legs around him like he did when he was a baby. With his boy in his arms, and the entire city holding them close, William walked back into the crowd, melting into the swirl of citizens, celebrating like it was their last night on earth. The sun was setting, finally, and the cicadas took up their song. The daylight hours of July 4th seemed to last an eternity, adding anticipation to that moment when the night sky first goes from dead to alive, thrilling and frightening in equal measure. From the rooftop of their apartment building, William took a deep breath and caught a waft of countryside air blowing in from the west, pushed on by the sunset. For a brief moment he could smell the honeysuckle, flavored with fresh tilled loam of the farm where he grew up, where he used to run through the wooded creek beds and crawl through culverts playing war. It was midsummer now, 
and the crops would have been growing so quickly you could hear the cornstalks creaking and popping in the fields as they thickened and reached up toward the hazy sun. The beans needed to be walked, and the hogs were fattening in the mud, looking for a low spot in the fence. The balers would be out, scooping up the first cutting of fragrant alfalfa drying in the fields, exposing a hidden civilization of earwigs and clicking beetles that gathered under the hot wetness beneath. William closed his eyes and took another breath, hoping to uncover more memories, but this time only smelled smoke. A neighbor had just lit one of those ridiculous cone fountains on the far side of the roof. Children danced around the guttering sparks like wild Indians, like the heathens we all once were. Jacob got up from his contemplation of a late-lingering June bug and joined in. William frowned. He had grown to hate the smell of smoke, of burning things which now filled him with horror when it was such a pleasant experience in his youth. He hated that he was an expert in smoke, noticing the nuanced differences of chemicals in wood, rubber, and flesh. He hated the things he had done while other things burned. He missed the smell of burning trash on the farm, but the sharp pungence of combusting plastic was just a cool whipped container dripping into the coals when the odor of burning hair and muscle was just the calcined remains of birdshot squirrel. Down below, a muffled hush swept the square, nudging William from his revere as the mournful sounds of taps began. This was the lament of the widows and the heartbroken left behind. William looked back at the door leading to the roof. He fetched Jacob and brought him close, listening to the song begat during the Civil War. The First Civil War but made so common in the last few years that it became an Independence Day hymn. It was written by a youth from the North who ran away from his family to attend music school in the South. There he wrote a simple, mournful tune. That young man died on the field of battle, fighting for the Confederacy, and the song was discovered in the pocket of the bloody corpse by his shocked father, who was an officer in the Union Army. The officer asked his superiors if the Union band could play it for his dead son. They refused his request, as they'd be damned if the band would play a tribute to the enemy. He pleaded and was finally offered a single bugle. The grieving father gave the song to the bugler, who played the funeral dirge to the lone body who had written it, Taps. William looked down at Jacob, who was watching the veterans parade with right hand raised to brow and a stiff salute practiced for so many hours in front of the mirror. His grandfather, who fought, killed, and died a little in the haunted jungles of Vietnam, would have been proud. William smiled sadly, wishing that Jacob would run away to music school to leave this city and this war and this grim and uncertain future behind, but Jacob would have nowhere to run. Music schools were stuff of fairy tales these days. Music was the drumbeat of battle, and schools were now campuses of war. The battalion band took over, playing John Philip Sousa as the parade proceeded through the square. A shout went up and grew. Men saluted. Women threw flowers and blew kisses. Children watched with wide eyes. It was a celebration of those who had survived and sacrificed so much to keep this country free. As the sun dipped below the horizon, Bathing the world in that sweet hue of magic hour blue, the first volley of organized fireworks launched into the air, exploding in Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Blowing showers of multicolored sparks taking on fantastical shapes. Flowers, sunburst, fiery spirals like the flash of galaxies. Jacob jumped up and down, clapping his hands and trying to whistle through his fingers like his father taught him. Somewhere in their apartment, William could almost hear the dissonant sax music rising in volume. Abigail needed to be up here, but she just couldn't. William understood that as best he could. The fireworks continued, unleashing burning glory in the sky. Brief, fiery sketches thrilled the crowd. The square cheered each glimmering salvo, bellowed like Vikings. People were drunk now, forgetting their fear in the haze of liquid hope. William watched the burning patterns branding the darkness reflected in Jacob's eyes. He picked up his son so he could get a better look. William heard a sound behind him and turned. Abigail stood in the roof-access doorway holding a lit sparkler in her hand, a tired, bleary smile on her face. He set Jacob down and went to her, took her pale face in his hands and kissed her deeply, like they used to kiss when every second mattered before the porch light came on. He looked into her bloodshot eyes and pressed his forehead against hers. Thank you, he said. Her soft hand against his face told him everything he needed to know. She held up the sparkler as it fizzled to a red glowing stick, then frowned, pouting like a little girl. William laughed and kissed her again, sometimes feeling as much her father as her husband. He took her by the hand and walked her to the edge of the building to their son, Jacob's eyes lit up and he said nothing as he hugged her tight around the waist. William put an arm around his wife and brought his son in close between them. For the first time in a long time, it all felt right. The way it was supposed to be. The way it once was. The all-American family enjoying the Fourth of July under a dying sunset, with fire in the sky and without a thought of tomorrow. Just then, a boom much lower and louder than the others shook the cobblestones. The parade stopped abruptly, the band's trumpeter trailing off like a deflating balloon. 
Fireworks continued to fly as the fuses were already lit, but no one was watching anymore. Murmuring silence choked the square. Abigail looked at William, whose face told her everything she needed to know. Another muffled blast sounded, and another. Triangulation. The citywide PA system croaked to life. Orders chattered into the night. Sirens wailed. Abigail fell to her knees and wept. William looked down at her, as if it was happening in slow motion. A plume of black smoke billowed up from Old City Marketplace, four blocks over from the square. The throaty belch of heavy machine-gun fire chewed through the din. Screams littered the square as the crowd scattered, grouped, rallied. God damn them, on our holiday. Just like last time. Jacob looked out for Abigail, but she was gone. His stomach turned. He didn't want to gear up and head out like this. William took a deep breath and turned to the roof door. A hand stopped him. It was Abigail, holding Jacob in front of her. She blinked away tears and smiled, laughing in spite of herself. He walked to her and she kissed him, whispering into his ear. William smiled, gripped the small of her back, re-etching the familiar curve into his memory. He then hugged Jacob and looked into his son's eyes. William wanted to say that he loved him, but he did it so rarely that he was worried that the boy would take it as a final goodbye. So he just nodded. Jacob nodded back. And then only two stood on the rooftop, and William was gone. White smoke drifted over the square. Black smoke rose beyond. Abigail closed her eyes. William strode quickly onto the street, wearing starchy fatigues, a modified M240 in his hand and a heavy pack slung over his shoulder. He blinked a few times, trying to orient himself to the frantic commotion of the square after dressing in the silent apartment. All around him, fellow soldiers, male and female, young and old, kissed their loved ones goodbye while others emerged grim-faced from apartment blocks still littered with bottles and trappings of the party that hid them from the outside world just hours before. A banner of red, white, and blue dangled limply from the awning of a shuttered storefront. Under it, an old man leaned on a cane and looked up for the stars of his youth. He didn't move, only stared. William looked up at the roof, where he knew Abigail and Jacob were watching, and waved. Another explosion two neighborhoods over shook the ground and shot red-gutted smoke into the sky. Infiltrators. Spies gone active. Peace had made security soft. Made all of them soft, William thought, adjusting the tight Kevlar vest under his jacket that always fit him so loosely before. He was adding inches, while the city was giving them away. Give them an inch? They'll blow up a mile. Gunfire ripped into the night, sending everyone but the soldiers scurrying for doorways. The man under the red-striped banner was gone. William jammed a receiver into his ears and a walkie-talkie to his mouth as he jogged toward the outer wall ringing Old City, receiving intel and barking orders. He had to man his post. The walkway cresting the wall was crowded with crouching troopers, weapons bristling outward like deadly whiskers just like the days of castles and keeps that thrilled William's childhood. A teenage private, still a bit woozy after fear burned off most of his drunk, lit up a cigarette. William shot a glare in his direction. The kid blanched and quickly stamped out the smoke under heavy boot tread. William shook his head. A glowing cherry earned you a sniper's bullet exiting the back of your mouth. Some of these guys needed more training, more time. There was never enough time anymore. William returned his gaze down his scope, 
scanning the frustrating darkness below. He knew they were out there, knew they were watching, praying to the empty sky. He could smell them, smell their smoke, exhaust, campfires, dank Turkish cigarettes. What were they waiting for? It had been hours since the last of the suicide attacks rattled the city and dawn was on the creep. Insurgent recon was lacking, as they leveled a recently emptied ammo dump and part of the old city prison, freeing two spies awaiting trial just long enough for proper justice to be rendered with the gavel fall of hollow points. Their slapdash Trojan horse failed to open up the enemy from the inside. Terrorists didn't win many battles. They just wore you down until you gave up and lowered your head. But tonight there would be no wearing down. This would be to the death and whatever waited beyond. William's earpiece crackled to life. Air support was on its way, but they were coming in from the nearest base in the Rockies a good thousand miles away. William tested the breeze, hoping to find a westerly tailwind. Nothing. Everything was still. Quiet, within and without. The holiday was over. The Air Force would be late. He looked up to the queer stars arranged in new constellations that knew not nor cared not what was happening below. He didn't think he'd ever get used to him, even after all he'd seen. A shooting star carved out a patch of grayish black with a dim trail of stratospheric sparks. Free fireworks. A commotion went up from the troops manning the west section of the wall. Dots of light appeared on the hilltop, about a mile outside Old City, on the grounds of what used to be a high school. William looked through his scope as the sun groaned through the pre-dawn dimly lighting the sky and giving the first glimpse of what was waiting in the dark. Flags decorated their front lines, flags with symbols of religious zealotry and indiscriminate terror. The crescent moon, the star of David, the cross, the insurgents from Pakistan, Korea, Italy, Ethiopia, Iran, England, Indonesia, India, and the barely United States raised their collection of mismatched firearms and took aim at the city wall ahead. They had half a squadron of banged-up tanks. Aging howitzer barrels bristled behind them. A battery of Russian-made rockets flanked each side. Ragtag military equipment patched together with a soldering iron and chewing gum. By the collection of this hard-won gear, this looked to be the last stand. He'd send them to paradise, good and proper. Fight like they do, die like we do. William sneered and shook his head, as all around him the flags and battalion banners of Old City were raised, catching the growing breeze. These were the flags of organized statehood against those of anarchy. These were the flags of the Twelve Infidels, those of fang, of eye, of tentacle, that of the Elder Sign, which tied them all together under the primordial bond of the One Faith. These were the believers in the blind chaos swirling at the center of time as revealed to the bug-eyed world through the great priest who cracked the foundation of the earth and rose from the sea to reclaim his earthly province, to wipe away with an atmosphere-splitting roar all the lies that filled the vacuum in its absence. It came back to remind us all of how it all began, of how it would never end. After bursting from the South Pacific, the Old One straddled the earth for the three days, crushing mountains and displacing seas destroying certain myths and validating others. One hundred million died in the unnatural calamity, a fitting sacrifice for our forgetfulness, for our arrogant creation of our own gods and fathers, 
in the absence of alien reality. Then, without a glance at the fleas weeping in the circus below, it leapt into the sky and disappeared into the ether, leaving behind a new order of things, staying just long enough to give us a glimpse of stark, mad reality, tended by those things that awoke with it, crawling from the earth and screaming down from forgotten mountains where they had waited for a billion years to reclaim Eden. But still, many did not believe, refused to believe, branding the old one and the elder things as spawns of the devil, even though the accursed progeny were incalculably eons older than their supposed father. These religious extremists clung to their upstart monolithic god and his handful of dirt-scratching prophets with violent resolve, spurning an older pantheon, just as they did with the pagans, the Babylonians, the Egyptians, the Hindus, the Greeks, the Native Americans. Where was their god now? Was it cowering out in the corner of eternity, or fled altogether? Did it ever exist in the first place? No one knew. There was no proof. There was only the faith of a bawling child waiting on an irate father who promised to come back and take them to paradise. The paradise was lost before it could ever be found. But still, they believed. They needed to believe, because not would mean they were wrong. That they knew nothing. That they were nothing but a handful of chemicals given mass and the electric spark of life. They wanted back the magic of the familiar. William's grim musings were interrupted by the deep, humming peal of the curiously shaped bell that one night just appeared in their abandoned church four years ago. He turned back as the nameless acolyte of Old City emerged from the cathedral, now a temple to the starry wisdom. He wore a cowled robe of yellow, stitched with intricate patterns that dazzled the eye even from this distance. No one had seen the acolyte's face, and none wanted to. The old city was devoted to the new enlightenment adopted by the American federal government and so many others at the behest of the twelve infidels. But that didn't change the fear that twisted the hearts of humanity still coming to grips with this new religion birthed among dead stars in a reality not compatible with our own. The acolyte raised his rapt hand and made several quick, arcing movements as if carving the air with tortured geometry. These gestures were now familiar, but no less unsettling to William, who pulled on his helmet that had the appearance of a cuttlefish, and checked his chamber. His fellow soldiers did the same, as a clarion call of horn and dissonant flute split the early morning quiet. The Army of Justice and Truth, the Army of the United States of America, took their positions on the wall, taking aim at those far out and below. William set up at the head of his platoon, and from around his neck took a figurine card from a greenish-gray stone. He brought the tiny, toad-like shape to his lips and kissed it. Elder gods, protect us on this day from the non-believers, William said, looking up into the dark sky. May the infidel triumph over the lives of the usurper. A shout came from farther down the line as three trucks without headlights sped toward the wall bucking and pitching over the cratered ground. Suicide attack. Grinding trident. The men on the wall of Old City opened up with fifty-caliber fire, thudding the turf with heated lead. Several Katusha rockets whooshed from the ground behind to cover the desperate attack, and slammed to the base of the wall, rocking the graves of smashed strip malls. One of the trucks spun out and flipped. The other burst into flames. 
the last truck, trudging lower to the ground under the weight of three-inch armor plating, withstood the barrage and was still coming. The decoys were dead, and the stuffed duck still remained, moving within a hundred yards of the wall. Just then, from behind the old city lines, a boy no more than twelve, just a few years older than Jacob, jogged forward, a law rocket launcher bouncing casually on his shoulder. All the men and women parted, allowing the boy to reach the edge of the wall. He hopped up on a box set down for him, took aim just ahead of the truck and squeezed, sending a whistling anti-tank round arcing downward. The truck stayed on course and met up with it sixty yards out, unleashing a mini mushroom cloud fueled by five hundred pounds of C-4. The terrible boom blew back the fighters on both sides, a mobile bomb that would have torn a thirty-foot-wide hole in the wall a Hail Mary in every ironic sense. As everyone picked themselves up, the cottony silence after a huge explosion was filled by a clicking and clattering coming from the sky, peppered by piercing shrieks. Many on the wall smiled, many more shook off a shiver. The terrorists sometimes had choppers, even an occasional jet, but the free nations also had things that flew. The Air Force had arrived. William looked up into the sky where winged insectoid creatures, alien ink blots against the bluish smudge of the Milky Way, moved in bizarre but graceful formation, sizing up those on the ground below. Small arms fire rang up from the enemy position before the anti-aircraft guns mounted on the back of pickups roared to life pouring death into the heavens. Phosphorus-tipped tracer rounds stuttered across the sky trying to bring down those things that flew above. Some took bullets and crumpled, falling with unnatural speed to dent the earth with a monstrous impact. But others found their targets, swooping low to rend metal and flesh, scattering survivors and sanity as they swooped back up into the unquiet sky. William crouched low and took aim, squeezing off rounds into moving figures that could be friends and neighbors, but who had all become the enemy. Fuck em. The worms could eat em all just the same. Bullets rattled the wall as defenders dove for cover. William reloaded and re-engaged when an RPG exploded to his left, blowing him onto his side. His ears rang, his eyes bled, but he could see flashes of fire, the rocket's red glare, the bombs bursting in air that were lighting up the sky above the city, carving rivulets of light over the towering bronze effigy of Sheikh Nazir and his eleven fellow infidels. A Baptist missionary a venerated Vatican cardinal, a Micronesian king, a Muslim scholar, three presidents, two rabbis, a swami and a Mormon leader, all those who lost their faith in the lies of the one God and embraced the horrific but undeniable proof of the many gods. The fighting increased as both sides vented their religious hate through sizzling metal. William got to his feet, Clutching the figurine around his neck, all he could smell was smoke. July 5th, the day the Twelve fought back. William looked up, unbowing his head. Tracers and explosions ripped across his view into the universe that was closing its eyes, turning away. Showers of sparks from exploding shells took on beautiful, terrifying shapes, creating a new show, an encore of brutalism and death that danced atop the sky below the mute stars that saw nothing. Free fireworks.
That was T.E. Grau's Free Fireworks as read by Jeff Lewis. Jeff suffers from bibliophilism and has no intention of seeking treatment. When not reading or collecting books, Jeff works for a huge semiconductor manufacturer in the area of mathematical modeling and simulation. Before being lured into the corporate world, he worked for the National Optical Astronomy Observatories and the Kitt Peak Observatory, spending years messing up his circadian rhythms. Jeff's free time is spent reading, writing, collecting, and consuming wine, traveling, and bothering the four cats that share the house. His tolerant and understanding wife works as a lawyer and spends a great deal of time pulling him into debates that he has no chance of winning. Thank you, Jeff. And that will be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify.
How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.